0: The Climate Pledge is to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement 10 years early.
1: This is Amazon founder Jeff Bezos.
0: Amazon becomes the first signatory to the Climate Pledge. We want to use our scale and our scope to lead the way.
1: As you can hear, he's now a climate leader. It's a distinction he claimed for himself last year, as did Rick Lesser. He's the president of Boston Consulting Group. BCG is launching a bold new strategy to achieve net-zero climate impact by 2030 at the latest. Then there's Mark Zuckerberg, whose motto is, or at least was, move fast and break things. He's a climate leader too, or claims to be. Look, it's great that these guys are joining the climate challenge, but climate leaders, really? You want a climate leader? look under my feet. Hear that? It's carpet. Or, more accurately, carpet tiles. Like the ones we put on kitchen floors and rec rooms, but fuzzy. You see a lot of these in offices, and they've historically been climate killers. Because the backing is made of vinyl, which is made from oil. Which means greenhouse gas. Lots of it. Methane, carbon dioxide, you name it. Using carbon dioxide equivalents, which we explained in episode 15, way back in 2017, carpet makers pump the equivalent of 20 kilograms of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere for every square meter of carpet they make. That's about 40 pounds of heat-trapping gas per square yard of this stuff. Think about that. I'm in a hallway now that looks to be about average width, based on a site called Dimensions.com, They say most corridors in the United States are between 42 and 48 inches wide, or just over a meter. This one is 1.2 meters wide and 16 meters long. That's 19 square meters of carpet, which translates into 360 kilograms or 836 pounds, almost half a ton of carbon dioxide. And that's just to make the stuff. This is just one corridor in a city of 3 million people on a planet of 7 billion people. But what if, instead of emitting 40 pounds of greenhouse gas for every square meter made, this stuff could store greenhouse gas, pull it out of the atmosphere? Well, that's what a new collection called Embodied Beauty does. It's made by a company called Interface, and it's carbon negative, which means the process of making it pulls more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than it puts in, mostly because that process doesn't start with oil that comes from the ground, but with plants that pull carbon from the sky. The process of growing organic material, harvesting it, and blending it with yarns and nylon ends up removing about a half kilogram, or one pound, of greenhouse gas for every square meter the company makes. If this corridor I'm in now were covered in embodied beauty, it would have pulled about 19 pounds, or 10 kilos, of carbon dioxide from the air, instead of emitting half a ton of this stuff. These products came on the market last year, but it took a quarter century to develop them. And guess what? Today's show isn't even about that backing material, as cool as it is. Because other people are writing about that. And I'm planning a whole episode on plant-based carbon-negative materials. Now, today's show is about what Interface did and continues to do while it was developing that material. It didn't wait for its technology to fully form before becoming carbon-neutral. Instead, it looked for ways to offset the emissions that it couldn't eliminate And it did so long before carbon markets as we know them now existed. I ripped this audio from a TED Talk that a guy named Ray Anderson gave more than a decade ago. He's the guy who founded
0: Interface. Believe it or not, I come offering a solution to a very important part of this larger problem with the requisite focus on climate. And the solution I offer is to the biggest culprit in this massive mistreatment of the earth by humankind and the resulting decline of the biosphere. That culprit is business and industry, which happens to be where I have spent the last 52 years since my graduation from Georgia Tech.
1: Ray Anderson graduated from Georgia Tech in 1956. He gave this TED Talk in 2008, which was about 35 years after he started a company called Carpets International, today just Interface, Inc. Then in 1994, at the age of 60, he read a book that changed his life.
0: I read Paul Hawkins' book, The Ecology of Commerce, The Summer of 1994. In his book, Paul charges business and industry as one the major culprit in causing the decline of the biosphere, and two, the only institution that is large enough and pervasive enough and powerful enough to really lead humankind out of this mess. And by the way, he convicted me as a plunderer of the earth.
1: Anderson, as far as I can tell, never contested the conviction like so many of his peers do. Instead, he conceded that industry really was killing our planet's thin veneer of life. He decided to shift the energy for his factories away from fossil fuels and to renewable energy. He decided to operate on the principle of sustainability.
0: Which we defined as eventually operating a petroleum-intensive company in such a way as to take from the Earth only what can be renewed by the Earth naturally and rapidly, not another fresh drop of oil and to do no harm to the biosphere. Take nothing, do no harm.
1: But he quickly learned what Roger Sant had discovered a few years earlier, and which you may recall from episode 49. Namely, it just wasn't possible in the 1990s to generate electricity or, in Anderson's case, manufacture carpet without fossil fuels, and certainly not at a price that people would pay. And if people won't pay for it, You've just become a martyr for nothing, because if good people go out of business, bad people step in. So, like Sant, Anderson decided to play the long game, to change what he could internally right then, and to invest in new technologies and practices that might not pay off for decades to come, but that would make it possible to shrink his company's carbon footprint in the long term. But this was the 1990s, six years before the World Resources Institute and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development published the Greenhouse Gas Protocol. Companies back then didn't know how much greenhouse gas they were emitting, let alone how to offset it. So Ray Anderson turned to an industrial engineer named Buddy Hay.
2: You couldn't Google anything because it didn't exist. So you know, you go to the library and and, and dig up some engineering books, and okay, what was the BTU content of a barrel of oil, and how much uh, oil was used in manufacturing. Man may
1: be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization.
2: There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon and we know it's ugly face we should put a big fat price on it and of course add to that drop the subsidies
1: earth we broke it we own it and nothing is as it was not the trees not the seas not the forests farms or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these but we can restore it make it better greener more resilient more sustainable but how technology geoengineering are we doomed to live on a bionic planet or is nature herself the answer that's the question we address in every episode of bionic planet a podcast of the anthropocene the new epoch defined by man's impact on earth and today we continue our multi-part series on the current debate over how we can achieve net zero emissions by 2050 beginning with how we define the term. It's one of these wonky but important debates that we all have to understand and engage in if we're to meet the climate challenge, but that most media, quite frankly, find too complicated and too boring for people like you. Before I dive in, a bit of housekeeping. If you think I'm doing a good job of translating these issues into plain English and putting them into context for you, and you want to hear more, then help me give it to you. By becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionic planet bionic planet no dots or dashes there you can support me for as little as one dollar per episode and with a monthly cap this way if i don't manage to generate an episode in a month you don't get charged and if i manage to crank out a ton of episodes you don't get whacked either You can also help by subscribing to Carbon Pulse using the registration code Bionic Planet. That will get you a free trial subscription so you can see what the professionals are reading. And by using the registration code Bionic Planet, you end up supporting the show if you do become a subscriber. The web address for becoming a patron again is patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. You can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. As we learned in our last episode, net zero is an endpoint that we have to achieve to meet the climate challenge. It's that point where we've eliminated all of the greenhouse gas emissions that we can eliminate through technologies like carbon negative carpets and then using offsets that remove carbon to mop up the rest. Climate neutral is something different. That's when you're using offsets now to balance out your current emissions by either removing or reducing emissions somewhere else, because paying for reductions is financing someone else's path to zero. Companies like Walmart are bragging that they're going to achieve net zero by 2040 and that they're going to do so without offsets. Forgetting for a moment that Walmart got big in part by dumping its junk on the rest of us and assuming that they will actually achieve their 2040 targets, which is not necessarily a foregone conclusion. What happens to the emissions they generate between now and then? This is a question that a lot of the groups that are opposed to offset simply don't have an answer for. And it's a question that Interface asked itself more than 20 years ago when they started on the path to zero. A path they're still on. Despite the new line of carbon-negative carpets and despite being a bona fide leader in the field, they're still on the path to zero. They're not there yet. But they started measuring their emissions and eventually offsetting them to become climate neutral until they can achieve net zero. And today's guest, Buddy Hay, is the man who Ray Anderson turned to when he wanted to start quantifying the company's emissions in the late 1990s. Back then, they hadn't even thought of offsetting, but were just trying to see what their emissions were so they knew what they could reduce.
2: We were just doing it to, to know where, what, if we were making progress because Ray Anderson was an industrial engineer at heart by education and, and he always knew that he needed a metric to measure if we were making progress or not. But
1: what to measure? While Roger Sant was able to measure his company's emissions, remember he was running an electric company, Interface was a bit more complex.
2: At that time, Interface had a carpet business, a chemicals business, and a fabrics business and you couldn't always correlate BTUs of energy or barrels of oil per dollar revenue. So it was quite a hodgepodge of things that we were trying to put together and compare at that point.
1: BTU is an acronym for British Thermal Unit and one BTU is the amount of energy that it takes to raise the temperature of one pound of water one degree Fahrenheit. The idea back then, as now, was to understand carbon intensity, emissions per unit of energy or per unit of outcome.
2: You couldn't Google anything because it didn't exist. So, you know, you go to the library and and, and dig up some engineering books and, okay, what was the BTU content of a barrel of oil and how much uh, oil was used in manufacturing our products, you know, when you'd have to take the uh, electricity used and try to convert it into a barrel of oil, and then the materials used, how much oil was used to make nylon, how much was used to make a backing of our products, things like that, and then could try to put it all into a common term, BTUs of energy. And we were using BTUs of energy at that point, the way we talk about tons of carbon or CO2 today.
1: So, using BTUs as a proxy, they started quantifying their emissions and looking for ways to reduce them by becoming more energy efficient and shifting to recycled materials. Keep in mind, this wasn't just about climate. It was about overall environmental impact.
2: One of our focuses at that point was to try to use as much uh, recycled material as possible. And I remember the discussion about, okay, I'll take the recycled material, but I'm gonna pay less because it's recycled material, not virgin material. Quite, quite the different process that we have today.
1: So even he thought recycled material was less valuable than fresh material because it was, you know, like used goods. Nobody, or almost nobody back then, was really pricing environmental value. The Kyoto Protocol wasn't adopted until 1997, and it didn't come into effect until 2005. But the United States had actually pioneered the first cap-and-trade program under President George H.W. Bush. That's the father not the sun. He'd championed and signed the first cap-and-trade mechanism as part of the Clean Air Act of 1990. Now, that law put a cap not on carbon dioxide, but on sulfur and nitrogen oxides. Let's call them SOX and NOX colloquially, and they cause acid rain. Under cap-and-trade, you had a government-mandated science-based cap on overall emissions, but companies were allowed to trade their reductions among each other. In theory, using market mechanisms to find the most efficient way to reduce emissions, but with a government mandate driving it. This isn't like pure free market fundamentalism where the market's going to just magically fix everything. It doesn't work that way. Then as now right-wingers went apoplectic, predicting everything from rolling blackouts and soaring energy costs to the end of the energy sector and a nationwide recession. Left-wingers had the opposite fear. They believed that industry would just buy its way out of its clean air obligations, and they likened the permits to indulgences. Sound familiar? Both sides were wrong, as we'll see in an upcoming episode on Knox and Sox. Another development you should know about in 1997, the same year that the Kyoto Protocol was signed, the U.S. state of Oregon, adopted its own carbon standard, the very first in the United States. It required all new power plants to keep their emissions below those of the most efficient existing plants in the country or offset the difference and the state-certified nonprofits to monitor this. I'll loop back to this in a bit, but I just wanted to put that in your head. For now, let's just say that the world was only beginning to put a price on environmental impacts like greenhouse gas emissions. For Interface, the goal, remember, wasn't to offset emissions, but to eliminate them. They did eventually turn to offsetting, but as we'll see, a couple of pieces had to fall into place before they could do so. The first was the launch of something called the Greenhouse Gas Protocol.
2: Yeah, it wasn't until like 99, maybe 2000, when the GHG protocol came around, that there was actually a defined structure for calculating greenhouse gas emissions. That, that was a little bit different, but we, I, was, I was certainly glad to see it.
1: The Greenhouse Gas Protocol, or GHG Protocol, as Buddy called it, is a global carbon accounting framework that, among other things, defines the way companies are quantifying their greenhouse gas emissions. I've got a whole show in the works just on the GHG Protocol, so I won't get too wonky here. But the gist is that you've got three scopes of emissions. You've got scope one, which are a company's direct emissions from its own factories and farms. Scope 2 are its indirect emissions from its electric company, for example. And Scope 3 is everything else, from its flights for business travel to the forest that its suppliers chop to electricity that its customers use, in this case, to vacuum carpet tiles they buy from Interface. Scope 3 is a quagmire, as Interface found and as everyone finds who tries to tackle it honestly.
2: The more you get into Scope 3 accounting, the more you understand that you just don't have enough within your power to do it without buying an offset or creating or owning a carbon sink.
1: But at this point, Interface wasn't offsetting anything, let alone its Scope 3 emissions. They were really just starting to get a handle on emissions and how hard it was to measure them when they heard from a group called the Climate Neutral Business Network, which came to them around 2002 with an idea. Basically, they said, you guys have a lot of trucks, and all your trucks use fossil fuels. And BP has this nifty rebate program. If you use BP's cards to fuel your fleet, you'll get 3% back, and you can use that to buy carbon offsets.
2: And that's when the concept of offsetting was introduced to me, and interface.
1: At this point, they were still struggling to calculate the emissions associated with their products. But fuel, that looked pretty easy.
2: We hadn't even thought about going to product at that point. You knew what the greenhouse gas emissions were from fuel because it's a single piece I and mean, you, you you could deal with that.
1: It wasn't like today when you can buy carbon neutral fuel because the company selling it has already bought offsets and attached them to the product. Although That's actually what Interface wanted
2: at first. Our goal was to have BP do it, but they didn't bite. They didn't take the bait. So we ended up using their rebate to buy the carbon offsets to make the the fuel we used carbon neutral. That then evolved to what we then call carbon neutral floors or cool carpet at that time.
1: So instead, working with the Climate Neutral Business Network, they went looking for
2: offsets, which wasn't easy back then. We did find some, and that was from Blue Source and then two other small sources. One was uh, Portland City Schools. And then in Philadelphia, there was a green schools program where they were looking at reducing energy use. Blue
1: Source is another pioneering company that today provides offsets verified under recognized carbon standards, such as the verified carbon standard, the gold standard, probably Plan Vivo. But back then, it was all trial and error. In the green schools program, which was not Blue Source, interface paid for fuel-efficient burners to be installed in schools. And then they used energy bills from the schools as a proxy for energy saved after the intervention. Sounds great. But it was, as Buddy points out here, a flawed system because neither he nor the schools really knew what they were doing. And you didn't have detailed methodologies like you do today.
2: The people we were dealing with were school administrators. And of course, they didn't know any more about calculating the carbon footprint than we did at that point. So they would say, Okay, this is our energy bills when we were using the oil burners. And here's our fuel bills now after installing the more efficient heat system. Now, there's so many variables associated with that. Colder winters, warmer winter, they didn't know what they were sending, and we didn't really understand exactly how to convert them.
1: This is not to take anything away from those schools or interface. They were trying something new, which almost always means something that doesn't quite work the way you hope it will.
2: We learned we learned a lesson real quick: is you don't you don't buy things to be done; you buy things that have been done.
1: You don't buy things to be done; you buy things that have been done. They also learned to know their limitations.
2: Our forte is making flooring. It's not developing the technology for carbon sinks. So we've got to buy it.
1: These are lessons that every company that's gotten into this space eventually learns. This stuff is hard and these markets are evolving. A lot of people are stampeding into this space with so-called new ideas like soil carbon, which I covered in one of my first episodes, often done the way it was tried 15, 20 years ago and didn't work? George Santayana said those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But we don't have time to repeat it now, which is why I'm offering this history lesson or so many of these history lessons in these episodes. And I'm hoping it's helping you out. Now look, the two complaints I get the most are one, Steve, you need to do more episodes. I completely agree. And two, you need better sound. I'd argue I also need a second and third set of ears additional production to really make this into the kind of show it has to be to have an impact. The problem is I'm listener-funded, so if you think I'm doing a good job of translating these issues into plain English and putting them into context for you, and you want to hear more, then help me give it to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Planet. That's Forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. You can also help by subscribing to Carbon Pulse using the registration code Bionic Planet that will get you a free trial subscription so you can see what the professionals are reading and by using the registration code Bionic Planet, if you end up becoming a paid subscriber to Carbon Pulse, you end up supporting the show as well. The web address for becoming a patron, again, is patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. You can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Getting back to the interview, Buddy had just told us that he learned the importance of buying finished products and not trying to do it all himself.
2: Once we learned that lesson, then we started going with professional companies who had them, had their carbon offsets verified. Then we we had a little bit more confidence in the tons that we were buying.
1: And this is where Blue Source comes in. But they were also evolving at that point, and they weren't yet able to offer a full inventory of voluntary offsets that had already been verified and validated and everything else. A lot of times what they ended up doing was walking companies through the process.
2: For example, at Blue Source, one of, the, one of the ones we purchased from them originally was enhanced oil recovery. And that's basic, basically taking CO2 from natural gas refining, injecting it back into oil wells, and then push out the remaining oil and then cap the CO2 on the ground. Sounded like a great idea. We said, well, it, it, it's, right now it's just going straight up in the air. If it can be put back into a well and, and, and capped, then that sounds like a good thing. So, you know, I think the company was called Ruby Ridge Engineering, that the, they would come in and their engineers would then validate and verify that this is the tons of CO2 that was actually put back into the, the depleted oil wells. And so that's sort of the, our starting point for that. I remember we we, pay, we paid a dollar a ton for it back then.
1: Meanwhile the Kyoto Protocol had kicked in and they had the clean development mechanism, which was a compliance market, meaning something like Cap and Trade like I described earlier, but they could be purchased voluntarily. Buddy says Interface looked into buying C D M credits.
2: And we couldn't afford those. Those since you know, those were what we would do, the first ones we bought that that were C D M like were, were carbon offsets that, that came from a CDM project before all of the paperwork was signed. You know, back then you implemented a project and it ran a year or so before all the paperwork was in, but yet they were still counting everything. And then so you could buy what was known then as pre-CDM carbon offsets.
1: So pre-CDM offsets were one way of reducing the carbon footprint, but mostly they were using voluntary offsets which still needed to be tracked and retired to prevent double counting. Remember I told you about Oregon and its double standard? Well, the state had certified some nonprofits to track and retire carbon
2: credits. But they were nonprofits that we said, "Can we donate these to you and then you retire them on behalf of our program?" And it was just a way to engage a third party to Say yes, okay. We received these, and yeah, we retired them. Much, much like the registries do today.
1: But it was a tedious process.
2: We did that several times. We write a letter to a third party and basically saying, "We, we would you retire these tons on our behalf?" And uh, then we then because we were having our program third party verified. What we did was we included a statement in the verification. Our verification process, that Interface was using or retiring these on behalf of the program. And the verifier then would would look at them and make sure that that we had documented those internally. So so we we didn't didn't use them again.
1: The companies that provide this verification and validation are a story in themselves.
2: We started out with SGS out of Europe, actually, the ones that were doing it.
1: SGS stands for Société Générale Surveillance, which is French for General Society of Surveillance. It's a Swiss company that started in France, dates back to the 1870s, when grain shipments across Europe were a mess. Grains would shrink, get stolen, rot, or just be bad from the start. And a Latvian immigrant to France, a guy named Henry Goldstuck, borrowed money from an Austrian friend to start an inspection service where he'd inspect grains leaving, say, Russia headed to France. The company eventually started offering insurance for the shipments that it inspected. And in the 1970s, as environmental issues became a concern, it started offering verification and validation of everything from water purification to healthy soils. And by the 1990s, carbon dioxide emissions and it's not alone. There are dozens of companies that provide verification and validation. Some specialized on agriculture, others specialized on industrial practices.
2: And then we went with uh, Bureau Veritas. And Bureau Veritas, we were them for many, many years. And then they sold their verification program to a company called APEX. So we we've had we've had quite a few verifiers along the way, a lot of different people looking at it. Uh, a lot of people giving us good ideas about okay, here's how to strengthen it, things like that. So so we we've we've got a pretty strong program, a lot of documentation, a lot of backup today that was, wasn't even available in the early years.
1: At this point, the voluntary carbon market was becoming a real market. The Voluntary Carbon Standard, today called the Verified Carbon Standard, was up and running. The Gold Standard was up and running. They both created reams of science-based guidance on how to create a legitimate offset. And Blue Source was able to offer finished products pretty much across the board. Interface, though, was still struggling to find low-emission technologies. They still weren't able to get this carbon-negative carpet to where they wanted it to be. So they decided to offer a climate-neutral carpet.
2: We, we had a particular line of products that we were promoting, and we wanted to designate that as the Primo product line. And in addition to that, we wanted to say that product line was carbon neutral. And that's how it started.
1: One thing they were getting better at was measuring the carbon footprint of their carpet, both pre-production and post-production, in part thanks to a software called Gabi, which is short for ganzzeitliche Bilanzierung, which is German for holistic accounting.
2: The Gabby software was a game changer for determining what the carbon footprint of our product was. It it applied science. And no longer was it back of an envelope, this is what somebody said, this is what we could find in a book. It, it it was a game changer for us to calculate the carbon footprint, even though it might be using Generic models of, we'll say, nylon, uh, yarn, and not specifically the supplier that we have. Back then, it was a lot better than what we were using to determine that. And as this software is becoming more prevalent and more people are using it, our suppliers are putting their information into the Gabby model so we can use actually our supplier-specific information in there.
1: And as more suppliers added their specific information into the model, Interface got some positive surprises.
2: In most every case, we find that that if, if we can get one of our suppliers of raw materials to put their information there, we find that, that we've, we've been previously overcompensating for the carbon footprint using a generic model.
1: But this also didn't happen overnight. The Gabi software came out around 2000, 2001.
2: 2008 was the first time we had our Gabi calculated carbon footprint of our products Third-party validated.
1: But by then, the voluntary carbon market was mature enough that Interface was exclusively buying pre-validated, pre-verified offsets.
2: It may be a lot less nervous because all of a sudden, you know, we could rely on someone else who had expertise in the field of carbon accounting to tell us this is valid, this is real, and the verification statement is is. is you know the guys doing the ver- verifying you know what they're talking about it was it was it was quite a relief
1: at this point interface also had a reputation as a serious offsetter who knew the market knew the stuff and a wave of new providers entered the market and started looking for them
2: well there became more sellers And then those sellers were approaching interface because not a lot of companies were buying back then. So every couple of months, someone would be trying to sell us some carbon offsets. And they had some very interesting projects. And we were buying more and more tons each year. So I was able to expand. So instead of just buying all from one supplier and one project, we started looking at, okay, so we can build our own portfolio. We can select what's in it, and and we can do it better than someone else because we because we know exactly where our factories are, and we'd like to find projects near our factories. And so it just sort of evolved from that to the, to the point where we would have five projects a year, and now we have 25 projects in a year.
1: This is one of those interesting things we always found when I was at Ecosystem Marketplace. Even though with greenhouse gas, a ton is a ton, people like to buy close to home, especially when there are social benefits involved. They like to buy local.
2: You would be surprised how many of our salespeople say that their customers want to know where our carbon offset projects are located. And it's always a positive thing if they can tell them, well, we have one here or we have one there near the factory. It's, it's perception. It's perception only. But it's important to our customers, therefore it's important to us.
1: It was important to customers, but not important enough for them to pay extra. And for a company like Interface, which was selling products that were carbon neutral, it wasn't selling the carbon neutrality in addition. It was embedding the carbon neutrality in the product. Price mattered.
2: I've got to have a price point on my portfolio that can easily be absorbed. Because we don't pass this cost directly along to our customer. We absorb it. So you have to have a price point that's easily absorbed. And so you have to have your own mix. And we try to put as many charismatic projects in there as we can.
1: Over time, the mix has changed. In the early days, they had a lot of renewable energy, but found industrial projects didn't resonate with customers.
2: Our customers don't want to hear about those. They want to hear about boreholes. Rehabilitation project or a hydro project or a healthy cook stove project.
1: Boreholes are wells, and borehole projects reduce greenhouse gas emissions by reducing the need to boil water. Cook stoves are clean burning cook stoves that reduce the need to burn wood.
2: Or a forestry project where we're saving some rainforest. Those are the ones that I want to hear about, and those are the ones that they they like to know we're supporting.
1: And these natural climate solutions are what this show is primarily about. They remain one of the most impactful tools for offsetting emissions in the short term and my goal is to help you understand how. Not just how offsetting works but how we can completely restructure our commodity supply chains to meet the climate challenge. I know it's complicated stuff but if you think I'm doing a good job of translating these issues into plain English and putting them into context for you. And you want to hear more and better episodes, you can help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. You can also help by subscribing to Carbon Pulse using the registration code Bionic Planet. That will get you a free trial subscription, so that you can see what the pros are reading. And by using the registration code Bionic Planet, you end up supporting the show if you become a subscriber. I'm also looking for sponsors as long as they come without strings. Your donations are tax deductible. If you want to hear more about that, you can reach me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. The web web address for becoming a patron again is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash bionicplanet. You can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds for to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. And that wraps up today's show. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.